this week on the Backtable Podcast. I think after going through the whole job search and my priorities changing during the job search, I think every applicant should just start with the most important factor to them. And so whether it be location, family, the spouse's job, the size of the town, the size of the practice, the type of practice, pick a couple, two or three things, and then make a couple of those your priority and then go from there. Because if you just start looking at jobs, you're going to get sidetracked and that's where you'll interview at more places than you probably need to. <laughs> and so I think if I had narrowed down exactly what I wanted, I would have made the process easier for myself. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shaw, and I'm a pediatric otolaryngologist at UT Southwestern in Dallas, Texas. We have a very special guest today. I have Dr. Varun Varadarajan with me. He's an otologist, neurotologist, and skull-based surgeon. As a lifelong musician, he obtained a degree in music and fostered his passion for auditory perception by pursuing subspecialty training in otology, neurotology, and skull-based surgery. He went to medical school at the Medical College of Wisconsin, otolaryngology residency at the University of Florida, and completed his two-year neurotology fellowship at The Ohio State University. He is practicing at Associates of Otolaryngology in Denver, Colorado, and he is here to talk to us today about finding your first job. Welcome to the show, Varun. Thank you so much. First, I want to say thanks so much for having me. I've really enjoyed the podcast. I think it's a great resource for both trainees as well as folks already in practice to stay up to date. And it's a great way to remain connected in the community. And obviously, some episodes are educational and really useful. So thanks again for having me. No, thank you for tuning in. I love it. And so Ohio State, we've had a couple of guests from Ohio State. We had Dr. Materka for our open airway panel. And then we had the Prashant Maholtra for pediatric CI. Yeah. Tell me about, because you got to work with him. You were a fellow there. Yeah, I was a fellow there. And we do go to Nationwide Children's Hospital as a neurotology fellow. I always, Dr. Malhotra has been wonderful. Um, we've both collaborated on research as well as patients together. But yeah, he's he's been wonderful to me. He's been wonderful. For any of our listeners, if you haven't checked out the Pediatric CI podcast with uh, Dr. Maholtra or the Airway Panel podcast with Dr. Materka. Those are both great episodes. So let's get into it. First, Varun, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice. Sure. Yeah. So I well, I grew up in Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, and as you know, that's where I went to med school. And um, after going from there to Florida to Ohio, um, ultimately I'm settled in Denver with my wife and my uh, 11-month-old daughter. And yeah, my, my practice is a private practice and it's a a little bit unique. The majority of, so we have six physicians and all but one are fellowship trained. And each of the fellowship trained physicians are almost exclusively practicing our subspecialty. And that's one of the biggest priorities for me when I was looking for a job is I really wanted to, after doing a fellowship in neurotology, I really wanted to do all neurotology and neurotology. And I was really fortunate to be able to find that with this practice. And that's also what they wanted for me. Yeah, there's there's obviously a wide range of jobs and what I was looking for is not exactly the same as another neurotology graduate or otolaryngology graduate. But yeah, I, that's what we're going to talk about today. That sounds great. So it sounds like a good match. So when did you first start looking for a job? Is that something, so your fellowship is two years. Is that something you do towards the like last nine months of your fellowship? Is that something you started looking for as a resident? When did you start looking? Yeah, so I didn't formally start my job hunt until I started fellowship. And after I'd matched into fellowship, 
as a resident, I considered going back to my residency programs institution at the University of Florida. That really would have been a great job, but there were a number of personal factors like the job job availability for my wife, um, the location of where our families were. A lot of these personal factors ultimately determined where we decided to settle. But similar to myself, a lot of my colleagues also started looking for jobs two years before completing training. But for many practices, many academic institutions, this is a bit early to be able to commit to hiring someone two years out. Um, there's obviously exceptions to this, but if, there, like, if there's a significant clinical need or if you have a personal connection or agreement with a practice or institution, that's really when a commitment can be made more than a couple of years in advance. Some prearranged commitments are by word of mouth and some don't really come into fruition until one to two years prior to starting. And some if there's a big clinical need, they may even offer you as a resident, like a stipend, for example, to agree to go there and practice. But yeah, that's probably for me, when I started fellowship, I started looking, but I really didn't sign a contract until the fall of my second year. I see. And so how did you know what was available? I mean, was there like online job fairs? Is it just what your fellowship directors kind of passed on to you? Did you cold call practices? How do you know where to go? Yeah, so a little bit of everything. So I found out about positions by a combination of job postings online or in, journal, in the academic journals. Like if you look at certain pages, they'll have job postings. Word of mouth for my mentors and a couple of interviews were just from that alone. And also by cold calling practices and pract- I just call them, ask to speak to their practice manager to inquire about any available positions around the time that you graduate. And some of the best positions out there, including Jobs at universities and private practices are never even posted online uh, because they just haven't either posted it yet or they didn't feel that they have enough clinical need to justify it. But if you reached out to them, they may say, actually, you know what? We could accommodate another person. The practice that I joined, I actually discovered this opportunity by cold calling. And there happened to be a retiring ear surgeon who had a practice to take over. And so I just got really lucky with that. And a lot of my friends who are in really happy jobs right now, are really happy with their jobs right now, found their jobs by cold calling practices. That being said, I would say to, if you're doing that, to be patient because practice managers are all, all very busy. They are maybe out of town and I cold called my practice and I didn't hear from them until almost a month later. So I just assumed it, what was going to happen? Then I got an email from one of the, one of the partners in the practice saying greetings from Denver. And then that started up the uh, phone conversation that I gradually met all the, the physicians there, talked to the practice manager. So I would just say, be patient with that. Yeah. So when you cold call practices, it was it like at that point, you and your wife decided, hey, we want to live in the Denver area. And so then you start looking at how do you, how do you even know where to start to cold call, if you will? Yeah, good question. So, so a little bit of personal background. So my wife is an allergist and immunologist and she, so we both did residency together at the University of Florida. And she completed her fellowship in allergy immunology at National Jewish Hospital in Denver. My family is in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Hers is in Southern California in Orange County. So we wanted positions where we were exclusively practicing our subspecialties. So she wanted to do only allergy. I want to do only ears and skull base. And we were fortunate that during the pandemic, there were positions available for both in a major city with direct flights to both our families. Those are really our requirements. So it wasn't necessarily Denver itself. It was on the map for us because of her fellowship experience. But we looked at a lot of a lot of different cities that had flights that were nonstop to Milwaukee and to the John Wayne Airport in Orange County. 
to be able to visit our families over a weekend and not have to make it a three-day ordeal necessarily. But that's how we ended up looking for job leads. And was a dual physician couple, it was also difficult because there may be positions for an allergist. And then, so she said, for example, oh, there's a great position in this city. So then I reached out to the university. I reached out to every possible practice saying, hey, I'm a neurotology fellow and I'm looking for an ear, ear job. <laughs> and they would, sometimes there wouldn't be anything for me. And vice versa, there, may, there were cities where there were really good jobs for me. But then, especially with the COVID pandemic, which we'll also talk about, but there were potentially jobs for her. Some of them will say, no, there's, we can't accommodate it. It's too saturated here. Or during the pandemic, we can't foresee what could happen by 2021. So that's sort of how we it happened. And we were just really lucky that in Denver, there are jobs for both of us. Yeah. So, and it was, you know, so we, um, my husband and I, we finished, we're also a dual physician family. And like you said, it, it's hard to find two jobs for that in the same place. Uh, and that can be a big challenge. So he knew he wanted to do IR. Uh, we had our first, our older one at the time, you know, just our older, we just had the baby. And so we were going to stagger our fellowships because we didn't want to be apart either with having with a baby. And so we knew we were going to be one year in Nashville. And um, I, you know, reached out to Vanderbilt as well as, you know, some of the other private practices. And I left, you know, cold, cold practices because I needed, I wanted to have a job for that year if possible. And actually, when we first started it, like you said, they don't always call back right away or they may call back and say, we don't have anything right now. And it really wasn't until six to nine, like six to nine months later that I actually started working for Dr. Mark Williams, who was actually on um, Backtable ENT for the voice uh, episode, but either way, who then had a need. And fortunately, because I got good advice from one of my attendings in residency, Joe Spiegel, he's like, get a Tennessee license. You know, you're going to be there. So if something opens up, you have it and just make sure you keep in touch with some of these practices because you never know. And so I think we underestimate the power of the uh, cold call. We're not used to doing stuff like that, I guess. And we don't always know that that can be super impactful. And it's also our way to kind of take control of the situation, I think, and be a little bit assertive and finding our own jobs as opposed to word of mouth sometimes too. Yeah. And cold calling. And one other thing that you just remind me of, it's, it's not comfortable necessarily doing that and just sort of trying to market yourself. And one other way to find out about jobs is by going to the academy meeting uh, in the fall. And so even as a first year fellow, I, I went to that meeting and one of the best advice given to me, similar to what happened to you, is from my former program director at the University of Florida, Neil Chetta. He's a laryngologist. And I was chatting with him about, I was like, hey, I'm at the academy meeting. I'm trying to meet, uh, I'm trying to meet folks for jobs. And even for a when you're trying to match it to a fellowship, he pretty much was like, you're going to wear a suit every day. You're going to go to the meeting every day. You're going to see someone you met at an interview or you recognize, and you're going to walk up to them. It's going to be painful. It's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to reintroduce yourself and just say hi and say that you're interested and just keep you in mind, whatever. And I did that and it totally worked. Yeah, for sure. So that kind of brings us to COVID, right? Because the academy meetings, you know, it happened this year, thankfully, but the numbers, attendance was kind of, you know, probably lower. I mean, you have COVID. How did that throw a wrench into your job search? Yeah. So the COVID pandemic occurred during the spring of my first year of fellowship. So I guess around March of that time is when everything started locking down in Ohio. So this was after I'd gone to the academy meeting in the fall of my first year. I had a couple of preliminary introductions to a few universities. 
I was firing off emails to institutions around the country. And along with my peers, I had several job leads that completely vanished as soon as the pandemic went into full force. Many started coming back near the end of my fellowship, but some never did. And it ultimately comes down to funding and clinical volume in a given university or practice and how they were doing before the pandemic and where that leaves them at this point. So yeah, I definitely lost out on some opportunities that are, some of them are popping back up now, actually, of some of those jobs are coming back and some of them have never really been able to accommodate that position again. Fortunately, though, obviously in Denver, there wasn't a job posting, it was cold call, right? And so they were planning ahead on this physician retiring. And so that timing's happened to work out well because he's retiring regardless of the pandemic. That practice was there and there's a lot of opportunity for growth. And so that is really how COVID ultimately affected me. And who knows what would have happened if the pandemic didn't occur, I may be at a totally different job. Right. Were you able to go check out the practice or interview in person? How did those kinds of in-person things that we normally do get affected? Yeah, good question. So I started off with just phone calls and I just one at a time started each physician in the practice took turns calling me and talking to me. And then ultimately when the more flights started opening out again, I took a total of a couple trips out to visit the practice. I interviewed at a couple of practices out here. And so I would sort of combine the trips and one caveat is if, if you are interviewing somewhere, this is a sidebar, and a practice is offering to pay for your visit, you should not go and interview at other practices during that trip. So then if they offer to pay for it, you can refuse if you're planning to see another practice. Um, if you're willing to make multiple trips then and try to save the money at the expense of your own time, then yeah, make multiple trips. Um, it's just it's good form, right? And a professional courtesy. And so that's sort of what I did. The initial flight out where I met multiple practices, I did not have them fund my trip at, at all. It was only when I started going for the second visit, that's when you can accept those, that sort of thing. But yeah, so I did two visits for this practice. And is that pretty typical too, before you went? So the first visit's the initial, the second kind of confirmatory or like how many visits did you or colleagues make for before you decided what's common? Yeah. So I think a lot of jobs, I think you get a lot of jobs, you can do just one visit and you can meet everybody and you could see everything and probably make a decision. But when there are multiple locations and there's multiple positions and folks to meet, you may want to do it over a couple trips. Cause when you're a trainee, especially you don't have the luxury of taking three to five days to do it because you will eat into all your vacation time. You'll, there's other jobs you're going to be interviewing for as well. You can try to see if your program director will let you use your CME days for that. But there's a limited amount of time. So I did two short trips where the first one I met most of the physicians, but I really wanted to see all the facilities too. So between the first and second trip, I continued to chat with them, ask, gradually ask more and more of my questions. And then for the second trip, I wanted to see the hospital. I wanted to see the surgery centers or, and I wanted to, I wanted to see all the office locations as well. And that's, that's why I did two trips. And then what were you, like, in, in your initial job search, what were you looking for, like, as these are the things I want in my job? And did that change at all? Like, during when you actually started to do the job search, like, did you have to kind of redefine your goals or needs or wants? That's a great question. And definitely. One thing I will admit is that I had not originally intended to pursue private practice. I started off looking exclusively at academic positions. That's just what I thought I would do the entire time as a res as a med student, as a resident starting fellowship. 
And then as I started doing the job search and with the COVID pandemic and realizing that it's not just about this idea in my head, it's also my wife's job. It's just as important as mine. And our location is also important. So these factors all play into it. And I started gradually looking at private practices and hospital employed positions. The, those factors I mentioned earlier ultimately influenced my decision to join a private practice. Regardless of my type of job, whether it be at a, like a university or a private practice or a hospital, my number one priority was to find a position that allowed me to exclusively practice otology and neurotology. And that did not, I did not let that change when I started looking at private practices. And so the ability to exclusively practice our self-specialties were one requirement that both my wife and I did not want to compromise on, whereas we would probably be okay living in a smaller city as long as we wanted to access our families and practice our subspecialties. So near the end of my search, I was emailing and reaching out to both private groups as well as academic institutions and big cities that we could also get on a plane over a weekend, visit our families. So yeah, that definitely changed, like you mentioned in the beginning and over the course of my first year of fellowship. Yeah, it's funny how like real life factors have to start mattering in our lives. We're not used to real life factors being a, able to play, uh, prioritize them sometimes in our training, but that's the rest of our lives. And it's important to be able to see that and make sure that that happens as well. So from a private practice standpoint, what kinds of questions should applicants be asking and what are private practice groups looking for? Yeah, so there are a lot of good questions to ask and to ask a private practice during your interview. And there are some questions you should wait until afterwards. And when you're closer to contract negotiations. Um, so I've spoken to a lot of my senior co-residents who were already working as either neurotologists or general otolaryngologists in the community that helped me formulate a lot of my questions. A lot of practice will, practices will have more than one interview, like we mentioned, and they'll also want to do a follow-up or a second look visit sometimes. And a, a lot of the questions you'd ask a private practice can overlap with academic jobs too. But for our private practices, common questions, I have a lot, I have a lot of, I actually have some notes here. And uh, after the podcast, if listeners ever want a list of this, I'm happy to share it with them. But basic questions to ask initially are things like, what is a practice looking for? Why are they hiring a new physician? Another great question is, how old is the practice? How long has it been around? To get a good idea of the history of the practice, the reputation in the community, and if you know anyone else in the city, asking them or asking a third party person. And you could find that I found a third party physician in Denver, another otolaryngologist um, that used to be at the University of Florida. So then I asked, I asked her, I got her contact information from my program director and I got her opinion of the, the several practices in the community and the, the landscape. And so that's something you want to get an idea of if you're looking at a new city that you're not familiar with at all. But another question is, how are the referrals going to be distributed to, to you? What, why, that comes back to what are they looking for? Are they looking for a general otolaryngologist? If you are fellowship trained, are they, are they hiring you to do your subspecialty or do they just have a need that is not fulfilled, but they also are going to have you doing general otolaryngology? And that may be what you want. It's, it's completely down to what your criteria are for what makes a good fit. But there are basic questions about the day-to-day, -day, like, What's your typical schedule like? How long are the providers spending with the patients? The patient demographics, adult versus pediatrics. But then you will eventually get down to things that are nitty gritty, like what's the compensation like? You don't. You, you obviously don't want to ask what the salary is when you first start talking to them. But is it compensation? Is it salary plus productivity? Is it RVU based? Is it collections based? One thing 
when it comes to that. And I obviously have a lot more questions to go over, but I'm going to go on a little tangent about that is some private practices for reimburse for physician compensation use a hospital recruitment agreement. And this is a setup where a hospital will cover the physician employee's salary, but not necessarily their overhead. And so once you as the physician earn enough to cover your salary, the hospital won't have to provide support to you anymore. In return, you sign the agreement to stay in the service area for the hospital for a certain number of years. And sometimes it's regardless of if you stay in that same practice or not. And so it's a little bit more complicated than just that, but it's a good deal in many ways because you get perks from the hospital and the practice, the, 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 for example, the, the, some of these perks, the practice alone can't provide you. And it also allows a practice to not have to completely pay out of pocket for your startup. On the flip side, is the practice completely dependent on a recruitment agreement for your job to work out? Or if the hospital says no, would the salary that they were initially planning on, they were initially planning on offering you, um, will that go down if the hospital says no to the recruitment agreement? Or can the practice front that? Can they just provide that out of pocket because they want you enough? Or, there, or is the practice sort of being like, yeah, let the hospital cover it. You build your practice. And by the end of this recruitment agreement duration, by then you'll be able to cover yourself. You know, both of these ways are fine as long as the, the setup is set up for your success, you know, but ultimately it comes down to what the mechanism of your startup is going to be. And there are perks though, which I can also talk about a little later as well. But one of the, one may be the support for you starting up. What support is there for your marketing and setting up meetings with potential referring providers? Meetings include like afternoon coffee, lunches. If you want to give a talk to a group of physicians, would the practice cover the expenses for this, like lunch or cookies or bagels for the office? And could that be negotiated into a hospital recruitment agreement? Hospitals, actually, one benefit of a recruitment agreement is that they often have physician relations liaisons or leads that can connect you to many referring providers. If there's no recruitment agreement, what would the practice be prepared to do to help support you in your marketing and networking? Are you solely responsible for this? Either way, it should be okay. If you start off slow, you'll have time to do all this, but the associated expenses, you should have a way to cover it so you aren't paying for that out of pocket. The next sort of, to, to move away from that, away from the tangent, what is the payer mix in the, pra- in, in the practice itself? Is the payer mix, if, if obviously your collection space, for example, it influences your success. And so is that distributed evenly among the practice physician? Or is it a situation where the junior physician gets a greater share of the patients with less favorable insurance plans? from a reimbursement standpoint. This can be tricky to ask early on. So you, you may want to wait to ask some of these questions in the beginning, just get to know them, just get to find out about the city, find out about the practice, get to know them personally, let them talk, let them do the talking and ask you questions as well. But otherwise you'll talk about things like the EMR. You'll talk about it's paper charts. How is the EMR? How do they like the EMR? You ask about the call schedule, ask about where all the locations that you go to for clinic to do procedures inpatient versus outpatient case distribution for the practice. Is there an ICU? Are you planning on doing bigger cases? Like if I want to do skull-based cases, is there a good neuro ICU that I can do that? Are there neurosurgeons that you may want to collaborate with? If, if you're doing head and neck surgery, and if you're doing, if you're trying to do head and neck in private practice, is there a ICU that can support your airways uh, and support your flaps? Is there a system in place for that already? And although otherwise, Things like if the, how is the practice efficiency when it comes to seeing patients and seeing how many patients are they seeing a day? How is the clinic documentation done? Is it by the providers only? Are there scribes? 
is the EMRs in a way that you pretty much requires scribes because otherwise it'd be impossible for the provider to do all the notes by themselves and see that many patients. What's the delegate? Stop me at any time because I have a nice list here. No, these are great. This is what we want to hear. Yeah. What is the delegation of non-clinical opportunities? Are there opportunities for administrative duties down the road in the practice itself or even with the affiliated hospital that they're, that they do most of their work at? I'll stop there if you have any thoughts or comments because I have some more that are very specific. No, to that's very helpful. Private practices. No, that's very helpful. This is great. And when you look into, I, I love the part about the type of EMR, what kind of, you know, do I have time to see the 15 to 20 patients in the half, you know, to book that many if I need to, or 10, whatever it is, or am I going to be too busy charting them the next two days for trying to. So, and then what kinds of, you know, what are private groups looking for? And they're, you know, what are they looking for, you think? Like, those are all the questions that we need to be thinking about, but what are they kind of looking for? Yeah. So most private practices are primarily looking for a physician who will work hard, fit in with the group, and either fill a gap in the clinical care that they need or to add to a growing practice. Some practices are looking for general ENTs who these practices are definitely looking for something different than those looking for fellowship trained subspecialists. Some practices are rapidly growing and they are want to add a, a general ENT or, a, a, or even a subspecialty trained person. If their wait time gets beyond a certain time, they're like, all right, it's time to add someone else, you know, but other practices, if they want a subspecialist, they need to have enough referrals to be able to justify that. And so these are, as long as they can find a good fit for them personally, and it fills their clinical need, and they know, and obviously your, your references are going to be important. And most practices will do pretty thorough due diligence about calling your references and making sure that, <laughs> that you're someone that'll be great to work with. But most practices are, are looking, for, those are the main two things. Is it going to fit? And are you going to work hard? for and fill in the gap that, that they're looking for. You know, it's funny. I tried to, I thought I this would be kind of a separate question, like what an academic practice is looking for. But a lot of the questions, or a lot of what you just said about fit, I feel like is very similar. And the clinical gap and or need or growing practice is very similar to what people look for when they're thinking about growing, you know, or adding to an academic division. But a lot of the questions that you pointed out of what the applicants should be looking for, whether it, for in private practice, I feel like it's very similar. Should we also be thinking about that similarly if they're looking for an academic job as well, right? Definitely. A lot of these questions overlap. And I actually have, I was going to actually mention a few more things that it may be overlapping, but some of this stuff may be more specific to private practice or hospital employed settings. But one is for, if you're looking at a private practice, before we get to the academic side of things, are what are the sources of ancillary revenue? for the practice. This obviously university had the same thing going for them, but examples of this for uh, include audiologic and balance testing, hearing aid sales, allergy testing and immunotherapy. Is there an in-office CT scan that provides revenue, ancillary revenue for the practice? Is there real estate the practice is invested in? Do they own their building? Do they own, are they renting an office space? Is the office space owned by a bigger corporation or the hospital? Is it owned by a group of physicians either in the practice or combined with physicians from a different practice, there's different permutations of this. Some practices even have an SLP. Are there opportunities or limitations regarding investment opportunities related to your practice? Investments may be into real estate. It may be any surgery centers that the partners of your practice or the other practice employees operate in. If you have a hospital recruitment agreement, are there any limitations in investment opportunities? Because 
the hospital is part of a bigger healthcare system. And if your partners are going to a surgery center that is owned by a competing healthcare system, is your, since this hospital is supporting your salary, are you not allowed to invest in there, even though a lot of your cases are being done there because you're doing what the other partners are doing in your practice? Those are things to think about in private practice too. And is there other things which is really important in private practice is, is there a path to partnership? Or is there, so you start off as an employee and what are the requirements for partnership? Is this listed out distinctly so you have no question about what the pathway, what you need to do to be qualified for partnership? What is the buy-in amount? Because that alone is an investment too, right? And so what is the buy-in amount? Does this vary year to year? How is the buy-in determined? How is that number to buy into partnership formulated? Is it arbitrary? Do they just make it up themselves because it's what it's always been? Is it a calculation based on the value of their assets or the depreciated value of their assets? And do any doctors get employed and then don't make partnership? How many times has this happened in the past? If so, why did that happen? And it's actually reasonable to, for partners who have, for physicians who have left a practice to ask for their contact information, if you're, if you're comfortable doing that as you get closer to negotiating a contract, to see what their perspective was. And you don't have to go through the practices there to do that. You, could, you can find out other ways to talk to former employees of that practice. And what do you get once you are a partner? Are the, what are the benefits really? Are you able to participate in decision-making? That's usually the main thing. Another is, does your income or revenue structure change after you become a partner? And are there any sources of ancillary revenue that you gain access to? Like all that ancillary revenue sources I mentioned earlier, is that only for the partners? Is that shared with any of the employees? The employees, if they're a salary and they make a certain amount that exceeds their salary, that obviously goes to the practice. Does that, how is that distributed? Some of those things, like as a, as a neurotologist or as a, as a you, you're going to do a lot of, you're going to do a, a lot of your patients are going to be producing revenue from the audiology standpoint, right? And if you're a rhinologist, a lot of your patients are going to be producing revenue from the allergy standpoint. How is the revenue from allergy and audiology distributed? Is it evenly among everyone, even though one person is contributing more to that revenue stream than others? If there's facial plastics people in your office and there's revenue from aestheticians and from Botox and from other facial plastics <laughs> sources of revenue, which I'm not well-versed in, obviously, <laughs> but you, you, you get what I'm saying with the, how, how is the revenue distributed? And yeah, so that's sort of what I was going to mention. And obviously the last, these are some of the later questions you ask along with things like vacations, holidays, CME, malpractice insurance, obviously non-compete clause. And for malpractices, you can, for malpractice insurance, you can ask about tail coverage. If you leave the practice and then a lawsuit happens, like what, how, how is there any tail coverage for, for you after you, you're no longer part of the practice? These are little nitty gritty things you get to later, but for, but for private practices and it's obviously academic institutions, a lot of these questions are important to ask. Are there any red flags that an applicant should be aware of for practices? Sure. Yeah. So there are several red flags to look out for. One could be multiple associates or employees who never made partner, high turnover of physicians, for example. If there were physicians who recently left, like we mentioned, like it's, it's reasonable to ask about their contact information to find out about their experience. And another thing is not being, as a practice, not being transparent with their finances. It's okay to ask to see the books once you've been talking to the practice for a while. 
uh, or once you're in contract negotiations, it's reasonable to see the practice finances, including compensation and overhead for the physicians. We always find that it can be kind of awkward talking about finances or money. What is the best way or how do you ask for that information? Yeah, it's awkward. <laughs> and so there's no easy way around it. I waited until I talked to them for months and that was what we were, they were already formulating a contract. They've sort of had a templated contract already where, you know, it's sort of like, there's only the last few things and it's okay to know many people get to the contract stage and don't sign. Like you have to see what's in paper because what they tell you may not be what's on paper. Right. And that's really when it's right near the, sort of the penultimate stage <laughs> of you deciding on joining the practice is when I felt comfortable asking about that. And there's, there should be, like we mentioned about partnership, there should be pretty clear guidelines and an employment contract is not going to necessarily go over those guidelines, but red flags would be like big, big buy-in amounts that they don't explain why it's not that amount or impending big buyouts where a partner's leaving and the practice can't justify the cost of any of these things. And that being said, here's a caveat to that. Many newly trained physicians really want to be in a desirable location. And certain practices, if they're in a really great location, can justify a higher buy-in just due to the job demand alone, right? And so I would say to the recap, at the, near the end of the, your negotiations is when you can say, hey, can I just see your, the, the finance breakdown? How, what are the big earners in the practice? What are the lower earners? You know, how is the ancillary revenue distributed? Yeah. And is that something, are you negotiating with like the main partner this whole time or does the practice manager play a role and that's who you kind of get some of that information from? That's a, that's a good question. I, I did go through the practice manager for a lot of things, but sometimes I would just have phone calls with the managing partner at the time, which may rotate in practices or it may be the most senior person, but I directed some of my questions to the practice manager and some of them to the, the senior partner. And once they once you get a contract letter, you'll be going back and forth with or without your, the assistance of your contract lawyer. And I actually had my, my lawyer draft a letter that way. Some of those questions aren't coming from me, right? Because you said it's awkward. So my lawyer, and he, he said, yeah, I'm happy to do that. Like, Hey, I reviewed Dr. Vardarajan's contract and, um, I want to review these items and he signed it at the end. So it looked like it was going to the practice from him on my behalf. Yeah. So these are, I mean, there's so much here. And when you're first finding your, when you're finding your first job, it's not like you've had much, for most of us, much exposure or understanding of the nitty gritty and even some of the business models, all the different business models or, you know, things that we need to think about. Who did you talk to or did you have anybody to help you sort of understand the nuances among the different practices, like, and the terminology and the risk benefit of all the different types of setups, whether it was hospital recruitment or, you know, non-compete. What other resources did you use to help you kind of understand all this stuff? Yeah. So one thing I would say is, and some people may disagree with this, but I would highly recommend if you, once you get a contract to have a, a lawyer review it for you and a lawyer who specifically specializes in physician contracts. So they've seen every combination and they know the city well, and they know they've really seen other physicians come and go and they've learned from their mistakes too. That being said, a lot of my mentorship came from my own faculty in academic practices, as well as former residents who were my seniors when I was like a PGY2, for example, who've been in practice for a couple of years and they moved to different parts of the country and they've practiced in various different models and talking to as many folks who've been in practice as you can 
and even folks who've been in multiple jobs, because then getting as many perspectives as you can is what helped me formulate this list. And I actually reached out to multiple, so some places I interviewed at, I knew people who used to be in part of that practice. And so they would give me insight as well. And so just from talking to people alone, I was able to formulate a big list of questions and it really helped me in finally narrowing down where, where I was going to decide on. Yeah. And then you said it's important to have a physician contract lawyer that knows the city. So does that mean you had somebody in Denver that you, or did you from your hometown in Wisconsin or Florida, or did you already have somebody or, Hey, I think we're going to do something in Denver or Colorado. So I think I'm going to get a physician contract lawyer locally there. How, how does that work? Good question. So that is, and I'm interested to know what you did as well for this, but I, I know people who've had great contract lawyers that were not local. And so you could find a, a, a company that does that. And there's really good reputed ones, but I wanted one locally just because it's a pretty small community. And I wanted to, someone who, there's multiple competing healthcare systems here, including the university. And I wanted someone to knew, who knew the landscape because it's a competitive market out here. And I wanted to make sure that I had someone who had a deeper insight than someone who on a national level is working with physicians from everywhere, right? And the other thing is you may get a deal because my wife's contract was also negotiated by the same guy. And he had a discount. If you, if you do like a second, add a second physician, it was a major discount for he would do two contracts for one. So that helped make that decision too. That's great. Yeah. All right. So is this a good point to kind of transition into sort of academics from like what people should be looking for or asking when they're, if they're looking into academic practices? Sure. I guess the last thing I would say would to, is to be pick your battles wisely with the contracts and prioritize what you want and emphasize those things. For me, I wanted to start an implantable hearing devices program. And in order to do that and practice the full breadth of my specialty, I need to have our office set up for that. So I negotiated that into the contract to have the audiologist trained in cochlear implants, bone conduction implants before I even started. And so that's just for my own specialty. But if you're going to do this in the place and you're starting something up new, you need to set yourself up for success. And so that's the last thing I would say. In the university, a lot of that's going to be set up already in most cases. But for private practices, that's the last thing I'll add for that. No, I think that's a, a very important point because if the system is, a, if there's not a system there, you have to figure out how you're going to set it up. And if that's going to require a bunch of resources, it's good to have that up front so that it's successful as a program and for you as your practice. So I think it's a great point. And with academic practices, it's a similar thing. You got to pick your battles. But the first thing you want to ask yourself, and you obviously know this, is the there's multiple positions as far as how the job is broken down. So how much, really how much research do you want to do? How much clinical do you want to do? And actually I'm interested in hearing from you, like how did you make that decision yourself when you were looking? Yeah, no, it, it's, I, you know, so I had the, my one year sort of where I worked with Dr. Mark Williams as a locums provider actually for that year. And so I kind of had a feel of what it would be like in a small practice. He's solo practitioner. It is great. It's fun. You have a lot of autonomy, but I, I did miss the teaching and being a part, having hospital system that was easier, I guess, consultants that were easier to access. Like you have that, I think in a freestanding, especially in a freestanding children's hospital, that, that's where all your collaborators for complex stuff are right there. And then in Dallas, so for us, you know, we came to Dallas. I was doing my fellowship and my husband started his first job. And the big thing was, does he like it, right? Like you said, I think with the two physician, 
job search at the same time, you have to make sure both people are are happy with what they're doing. And, and that's tough. And, you know, it's one of those things that's very fluid. It, it might change. It might initially be like, yes, this is great. And then you never know three to five years down the line, people make changes, changes happen. And so I think the picking and choosing your battles, that's like a life mantra. It's like a day-to-day mantra, right? And yeah, so we came here, the first thing, and I think I was, you know, a little bit, not late, late, but a little bit slower um, just because I wanted to, we'd had my my second, uh, our family grew, had a second baby. And the thought was, does my husband like what he's doing? And if so, then we'll pursue Dallas. And in terms of family, that was very important to us too. I'm from Shreveport, Louisiana, which is less than three hours east of here. And so my parents were close and my brother's in Dallas. And so in terms of family and having small children, that was that, you know, having them close was very important. And then I, I'll be honest, I got so lucky because, so I ended up staying right where I was. And so uh, in terms of like a major job search, I didn't really do too much. I looked at one other practice, uh, private practice here in Dallas, but you know, I just, I loved my, my department. I had the, it was lucky. I had, there was opportunity uh, that was available that so the timing worked. And as a fellow, you get to know the attendings or your part, who your partners are going to be very well, right? Because you're the trainee at some point. So you, you know how the system works, you know how the clinic works, how the OR works, how the hospital runs, how's your division and your department runs. And so, and I, I really felt like I had good mentorship too from, you know, Ron Mitchell, Romaine Johnson, all the, all the people that I've gotten. And I had, you know, for what I wanted to do, which, which was pediatric sinus. I was also very lucky because I felt supported and I still do by the adult rhinologists. I'll call them and ask them and we discuss cases. And the reason I have a very cool pediatric sinus practice is because I have collaborators and supporters from that side as well. So from that standpoint, uh, from that academic, but in terms of like a major, like you were much more thorough and in-depth with your job search, I think, um, than I was. And so I feel lucky from that standpoint. But yeah, for me, for me, it was, it was people. Like, it was definitely what I wanted, you know, clinically what I wanted to do. But I think it was also where, who am I going to be around? What environment am I going to be around in to where I, I'm going to feel happy and have some growth? And for me, the fit thing, I think, was probably important. And, and not that you have to sometimes choose clinical, what you would do clinically and fit, like those things should line up together. I think you need both. And fortunate for me, that was lucky. But I think at the end of the day, initially for me, if I had to pick one, I think it would it would be fit just because you never know how the clinical practice is going to always turn out. So one question for you, do you think the resume or the cover letter matter? I was talking to our current fellow Taylor Toplitsky, and she was like, you know, all these places want cover letters. I don't remember. Maybe I wrote one. I don't remember. Like, does that stuff matter? Yeah. So I guess for the CV or the resume, obviously for academic job, it's going to matter. And for private practice, I think it depends on the practice. My practice, for example, they really read my CV. At least I, I like to think they did. <laughs> and a lot of practices want a competitive surgeon who did well as a trainee. And research is less important for many, probably most private practices, but some actually do some research themselves. And a lot of them like the prospect of having a well-published position with areas of expertise within their practice. That's a good marketing tool as well. And as far as a cover letter, some practices and job applications do require this. I personally think it's a good idea that the cover letter doesn't need to be long. Some academics jobs may ask for other statements in some of the applications I did. They required a letter of intent and like a letter require a letter describing my research expertise, 
a research intent letter, um, but for a basic cover letter, all it has to say is who you are, what you're applying for. If you want, you can briefly state your professional goals and then list out the documents you've enclosed, either electronically or in print, and then say thanks, thanks the committee or thank whoever it is for reviewing your application. And then in that packet, obviously this is to be a paper packet, but if it's an email, you just say, I have a cover letter and my documents attached. Or if it's like an online form to, for the application, you can at, attach the cover letter and have inside after signing it. And it just looks professional. To be honest, I don't know how much of a difference it made. Yeah, but it's part of the formality. You got to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I thought it looked nice and, and uh, looked professional. So I just did it. Yeah. And then how many interviews do you think are typical? And it may just depend for everybody. But, um, I, you know, when we think of medical students applying for residency, we say, OK, you want to get at least like 10 or whatever the number is. I don't I don't know what the magic number is these days, but we always say you want to try to do however many. And I know this is different because it's not a match. Right. This is the first time we're in our training where we're like actually having we can say yes or no as well. Right. If we're offered the job. So the, the roles are a little bit different. But um, how many interviews do people typically do, you think, on average from the people that you know? Yeah, yeah. So like we like we sort of talked about earlier, I think one to two are typical, but I can imagine circumstances where if you're deciding between multiple jobs and you want to see every facility and you want to meet every possible person, like for example, if you're doing an academic interview for a clinician scientist job, you may want to see lab space. You may want to talk to potential PhD collaborators. If you're a PhD yourself, you may want to take, it may take time to see what the space you'll be working with if you need lab space that is. And you can't necessarily do that in one to two trips. And it may, obviously Zoom helps um, and the virtual interviews help with that. But there's going to be circumstances like that where I can totally see that more than two trips would be necessary. But I think one to two are probably most common. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think so. I would say at least two is probably what I would say is on average. But I didn't know what your thoughts were on how many actual different job interviews or places to interview Oh, I see what you yeah. mean. Total job interviews, I see. That's a good question. I mean, um, and it may var be variable, right? Like some people know exactly where they're going to end up because of different circumstances. For others, I know it's like, well, the sky's the limit and they can go anywhere. And that can be, either of those can be overwhelming. But I didn't know if it's like, listen, most people do interview at two to three practices or five or I, I don't know, maybe there's no magic number, but at least from your colleagues on average. I think for preliminary introductions, phone calls and virtual things, Several is normal, like even phone calls to chat with them without before the formal interview and the way you sort of screen each other, you see if it's what you're looking for and make sure that they're looking for somebody. And then from there, I, I for me, it was probably like five to seven places that I just had phone calls, at least phone calls, if not Zoom chats with. And then from there, it narrowed it down to two, possibly, I think two to three. And then I narrowed there down to two of them that I did a second look for. Yeah. Well, Varun, thank you so much. This is super helpful. As we wrap up, I wanted to ask you one last question because you've now been in practice for a couple months. And so this is a good time to kind of ask, what do you wish you knew before that now you know when you were looking for a job that you're like, oh yeah, I wish I had oh, I'd done this because now you see it in your day-to-day -day or something that you've noticed? Yeah, I think after going through the whole job search and my priorities changing during the job search, I think every applicant should just start with the most important factor to them. And so whether it be location, family, the spouse's job, the size of the town, the size of the practice, the type of practice, pick a couple, two or three things, and then make a couple of those your priority and then go from there. Because if you just start looking at jobs, you're going to get sidetracked and 
that's what you'll interview at more places than you probably need to. <laughs> and so I think if I had narrowed down exactly what I wanted, I would have made the process easier for myself. But yeah, so that's, that's, that's the last thing I probably would have to add. What about you? I think just remember that the priorities might change, you know, whether you're during your job search or within the first one to two years out and there's no forever job. I think we put all our, don't put your, all your eggs in one basket and that's okay. And that's a scary thing to think about, right? We've done all this stuff to finally, da-da-da, we're this otolaryngologist and we have, you know, there's no perfect anything. And so I always just say, just go with it day to day because there's a high number of people that end up changing their jobs within the first two years and nobody tells you that. And that's a very scary thing to think about uh, when you're coming out and where you're trying to find that job. And, and it's okay to make changes and be flexible and just do what you think is the right thing for yourself and your patient. But uh, yeah, it, things change. Yeah, except some of the best advice I got were from people who changed their job and they, it's, they all took something away from it and it helped them yeah. overall. So if you guys want to find more about Dr. Varadarajan, um, he's at the Associates of Otolaryngology in Denver, Colorado. Varun, do you have anything on social media or other ways that people can find you? Sure. I think I deactivated my Facebook, but I'm on Instagram. <laughs> my Instagram username is eardocvv, all lowercase. Awesome. Thank you for all of our listeners for stopping by. Thank you for any returning listeners as well as anybody new. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Apple, and Ghana. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Backtable ENT. We love feedback. Reach out to us for topics, ideas, speakers, or if you ever want to come on the show. Thank you to our audio engineer today, Ness, and we'll see you next time. It's a wrap. <laughs>